Welcome to Harnessing Your Wealth with Billy Peterson. As the founder and CEO of Peterson Wealth Services and a former number one ranked jockey, Billy knows what it takes to succeed. In this podcast, Billy and his team will help equine enthusiasts, business owners, and retirees understand the keys to financial freedom. Saddle up and get ready for a ride you won't soon forget on how you can harness your wealth. Hello, folks. This is Billy Peterson. Welcome to Harnessing Your Wealth. We have a wonderful show lined up for you today. I'm excited to introduce our guest speaker today from First Trust. He's the economist for First Trust, Strider Elos. Welcome, Strider. Hey, thank you, Billy. It's wonderful to be with you. Yeah, we're very excited to get your opinions today and your outlook on the markets. Also joining us is Sean. As you all know, Sean, the sidekick, the part, <laughs> the partner to Harnessing Your Wealth. Happy thanks. to be here, Bill. Thanks for being here, Sean. Yeah. Let's kick this off with Strider. So we want to get your background a little bit of, about you and and your background in finance. Will you mind sharing with our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I actually grew up in the Chicago area. I went to Wheaton College, a Christian liberal arts school there. And it's actually Wheaton, Illinois in general, is actually one of the financial meccas, uh, especially for uh, financial products uh, really in the world, which is kind of interesting to think about. A lot of big companies have come out from there. And uh, about 15 years ago, I joined on to First Trust portfolios and uh, actually connected with First Trust while I was in college there and interned for Brian Westbury, our chief economist, uh, for two years while I was still in college. And uh, uh, came on after and have been with him really, uh, been with First Trust for the last 15 years and and with Brian as well. And uh, it's been a wonderful journey, a lot of fun. Started off um, as an economic research assistant and just has gradually grown in the roles and positions and I'm a senior economist there now. And uh, it was kind of an interesting story coming over. Uh, I really enjoyed interning for Brian, but originally I thought I was going to go into private equity when I graduated. And so uh, I shot our chief economist, Brian Westbury, an, an email uh, my second semester senior year, just asking if he had any connections in the Chicago area for private equity. And he just wrote back, come work for me. And so uh, that was my my interview uh, with him. And obviously, I'd been interning for him for the last couple of years. So he gotten to know me. And uh, it's a wonderful, First Trust is a wonderful company. And it's been a really great fit. And uh, which is why a lot of people that uh, start at First Trust or, or start working for First Trust really don't leave uh, just because it's a great, great environment, great place to be. Great culture. We've enjoyed our association with First Trust for several years now. You guys are very attentive. You have a lot of meetings. You provide a lot of, <laughs> you know, context for us advisors and for us to help pass that on to our clients. So I think it's very valuable information. So getting out there, we love to listen to Brian Westbury too yeah, when he gets best. on. He's great. Yeah, he's great. When you said you shot him an email, I was kind of waiting to make sure you just weren't going to say you shot him in order to take his position. <laughs> I know a lot of people do a lot of things to get yeah, up the ranks. Yeah. No, 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 no. Okay, well, good. We like him too. Yeah, we do. <laughs> hey, let's talk about the economy. You guys, you do this every day over there. We're hearing a lot in the news media, and of course, across all the different platforms that we listen to, about 
a pending recession. We've been hearing this for several months now. And of course, the definition of a recession has, has seemed to have changed just in the last year. Tell us what you your position is. How do you define a recession, first of all? And do you expect one? That's the second question. And then I guess the third layer to that is how severe, if it is going to happen? Yeah, so I, I think <clears throat> this is a great point because I, I do believe that the definition of recession is not defined or very clear. Uh, I think really the ultimate definition of recession is broad weakness across a uh, majority of the economy, contraction across majority of the economy is what you need to be looking for. And so a great example of this is if you think back just to last year into 2022, we had two consecutive quarters of negative real GDP growth in the first and second quarter. And many people believe that's the actual definition of a recession. But if that were the case, if you look back really post-World War II, we've had 12 different recessions. Of those 12 recessions, eight of them started with two consecutive quarters of negative real GDP, but four did not. So it's a very good rule of thumb, uh, but by no means would I say it's the actual definition of a recession. And so that's why we have the, the National Bureau of Economic Research. They come out and they basically uh, declare whether or not we've been in a recession. It usually takes them about a year to, to come out with whether or not we are, we're in that recession or not. And so I think the fact that we have not uh, seen them come out and declare um, that we're in this, that we had this recession last year means that we didn't. And in fact, if you look at that two, two quarter period, a majority of the indicators that the National Bureau of Economic Research finds important uh, were still growing and growing very meaningfully over that period of time. Only really two of those six were declining. Usually when you're in a recession, all six of those big indicators they like to look at were uh, were either negative or, or majority of them at least were negative. And so I do not believe there we had a recession last year, but this year I think is a different story. As you said, people have been talking about this recession coming uh, for <clears throat> the last couple of months, but really I, I think they've been talking about it for at least uh, the last year, really back into that period of, of the first two quarters of last year. And the fact that it hasn't materialized yet um, makes people, some people believe that maybe we won't see this recession, but the reason that we're now in a recession, in the recession camp, I'd say, is because what really drove the last couple of years, the the kind of big spending, big uh, everything spree that we went on, uh, big increase in money supply spree, well, that's all come to an end now, that so-called, you can think about it like morphine, uh, that morphine is now wearing off. And at the same time, you look at money supply, which we believe is the most important thing to be following right now, uh, that's actually contracting now uh, and contracting at the fastest pace that we've almost ever seen in history right now. And that in general should push us into a recession, we believe, maybe in the second half of this year. And with that contraction, is that mostly caused by the Fed with the rapid increase in rates? Uh, well, I'd say partly if it impacts lending, slowing down lending, but but in general, we've just been seeing money supply fall. Some of it's been due to the Treasury general account um, money that gets pulled out for taxes. So if you've got, say you've got $100 in your checking account, you take that $100 and you pay taxes with that money. 
Um, that now goes over to the treasury, which pulls it out of the money supply. So that's partly it too. A little bit of it is quantitative tightening going on. And, and some of it, I'd say most recently, um, we're, we've seen deposits decline uh, because of the banking issues that we've been seeing. So all of that combined is slowing down uh, the growth rate of money. And in fact, it's contracting now, uh, which is a negative for the economy moving forward. Mm-hmm. Can you explain a little bit for our listeners the concept of quantitative tightening? I know we went through several years where quantitative easing was the big word of the day. Explain to our listeners what this opposite effect is. Yeah, so essentially, if you think back, if maybe it is better to start with quantitative easing just to kind of give people an idea of what was going on in that period too. So Essentially, what's been going on uh, really back to 2009 is the Fed's embarked on quantitative easing, kind of four different periods of it. And really what was going on was the Federal Reserve, they couldn't lower interest rates any further. And so what they decided to do was to buy up from mainly from banks, but from other institutions too. But let's just say from banks to keep it simple, uh, to buy up mortgage-backed securities and treasuries from these banks. And in turn, they would credit these banks with reserves. Uh, now, that's kind of the way quantitative easing was working. If you look at the first three programs of that QE, uh, that money really never saw the light of day in the economy. And the way we know that is if you look at that M2 measure of money supply, which is money that's outstanding in general in the economy, uh, it just continued to grow really since the, at the same rate that we'd seen since 1995, right around 6% a year. We didn't see this big explosion higher like you would have expected if that money was being lent out. And so instead, what banks were doing was uh, they weren't lending that the, those reserves out. They, were, they turned around and really gave them back to the Federal Reserve where they're earning interest on these excess reserves. Now, why did they decide to do that? Well, I think partly if you look at cash assets as a share of total assets for banks uh, back in 2009, they were down to under 3%. So I'd say that banks did have a big uh, solvency issue back then. And essentially, one thing quantitative easing did was it took cash assets as a share of total assets for banks from under 3% to almost 15%. And even today, uh, they're sitting at very healthy levels around 9%. Uh, and so what was so different about quantitative easing for, though, from the other periods of quantitative easing was that that money did make its way into the economy. And the reason this happened uh, was because, uh, again, when you think back to that period in 2020, uh, March and April, that's when we shut down the economy. And so the Fed did everything possible uh, to try to stem the downturn. They cut interest rates to zero, provided liquidity, basically any sector that needed it, and then this quantitative easing for. But what was different about quantitative easing for was that that was uh, money that was essentially, you look at the spending that took place over that period of time, we added trillions of dollars of stimulus money to the economy. And usually the only way government can spend money is by either borrowing it or taxing it from the private sector. But this time around, what happened through basically this quantitative easing program was the Federal Reserve created trillions of dollars out of thin air and they purchased bonds from the treasury. So now the treasury has trillions of dollars of new money and the treasury took that new money and they directly deposited, in, deposited it into people's bank accounts. And so all of a sudden we did see that measure of money supply skyrocket. In fact, over that two year period, 
it increased by over 40%. So now with quantitative tightening, uh, the opposite is taking, taking place. So as some of these bonds come due that the Treasury, or excuse me, that the Federal Reserve has, they're now extinguishing those, those bonds. And so it's actually uh, lowering the money supply slowly moving forward here. And that's going to continue, I think, moving forward. That will probably be uh, before, I think, before the Fed uh, decides to cut rates at some point in the future, that'll probably be something that they they stop completely before they start to cut rates. When I hear you say um, printed money out of thin air, I mean, from an advisor standpoint, all I think of is, well, that's that's inflationary. That's an inflationary <laughs> act. Yes. and. You know, when when we have clients coming in and we're talking retirement plan projections, one of the biggest things that they're concerned about and we're concerned about is the inflationary environment. Do, does the Fed get a hold of this anytime soon? And it, it, you know, it just always seems like to me like the Fed's headed one way, trying to, you know, reduce inflation, but we've got spending that's through the roof that's creating inflation. How do they meet? Yeah, I think the Fed always overreacts both ways. And so I think what we're seeing today is inflation is starting to come down. I think it's going to be a little bit more stubbornly higher than what most expect. Uh, but I do believe it's going to be under control in the next year or two. And the reason I believe that is 100% due to what's happening with that M2 money supply measure. Uh, it, it started to decline about a year ago, and it usually takes at least six to nine months for that to start to work through the system in a meaningful way. It can even take up to 18 months for that matter to really uh, be reflected in prices. Uh, we saw it on the way up when we added 40% to the money supply. That's what caused the inflation over the last couple of years that we've been seeing. But I think the same is going to be true on the way down. The fact that money supply is contracting now is a very good sign that Prices will get under control uh, probably either late this year or, or into next year. We could see uh, inflation back down to around 2%, but I think that will come at the cost of a recession as well. And when you think back, I think the best period to look at uh, the last time we saw substantial inflation back in the, the late 70s um, and Paul Volcker had to come in. Arthur Burns was, was Fed chair before. And he really curtailed to the administration. And so any political pressure he felt, uh, he'd be raising rates. And then all of a sudden, um, it'd feel like things were getting under control. And so he'd pause or he'd start to cut immediately. And then all of a sudden, inflation would come roaring back. And it took Paul Volcker, who really had nerves of steel, that to come in and say, look, I don't care where interest rates are going to go here. What we're going to focus on is the money supply and we're going to get inflation back down to where it needs to be because if inflation continues to run out of control, we'll have no economy. So we'd much rather go through a recession uh, and be overly aggressive than to let inflation continue to run rampant. And I think when I look at Chairman Powell, he's definitely, from all the, the meetings uh, that I've watched and uh, the readings that I've done on his speeches and whatnot, uh, he really wants to channel Volcker here. Uh, I think he is going to stay more aggressive on on rate hikes or even keeping rates elevated than what the market currently believes. Uh, in fact, the market this believes this year that um, we have one more rate hike here this week. And then after that, we're actually going to see rates uh, start to fall towards the end of the year and, in fact, be lower than where we are today. 
And I just do not believe that. I think if anything, maybe we're one and done here, maybe another hike as well, but then they'll hold rates steady for quite some time and until they see that inflation has come back down. So they're probably doing too much. Uh, but all that to say, I don't think he wants to be an Arthur Burns. He really wants to be a Paul Volcker because as, as everybody realizes, especially uh, he does, is that the um, if you do not get inflation under control, you have no economy. And I think that's the number one priority here is to to get inflation under control. Yeah, it's a political hot seat, is it not? It's yes, definitely. watching watching what's unfolding with these Fed chairman and the pressure that they get from the administrations, from Congress, obviously from those who are in power because they don't want to lose power. So the folks in power want nothing but ease. They want they want easy economy. They want easy money. They want to keep somehow the economy moving forward because when people are doing well, they tend to vote for the same thing. However, when people are struggling and the economy is not doing so well, they are looking for a change. And that's the interesting dynamic unfolding as we watch all of these different congressional testimony from various Fed officials. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm with you. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think you're you're right on there. I mean, every politician tries to do what's best for them in the short term without any regard to the the impacts over the long term because they're no longer going to need to worry about where things are in the long term because they're only there for the short term. Correct. And so that's uh, a, it can be very damaging, very damaging policy yeah, for sure. I've always said that the single biggest factor to correct so many of these problems and corruption and really treatment of focusing on only that short-term stuff is term limits. I mean, honestly, if we would just have something in the place where these people didn't care about only their election, re-election, and actually did what was right for the people, um, a lot of these problems would go away. Sure. But of course, that's that's just us being wishful Wh thinking. Wishful thinking, <laughs> Billy. Wishful thinking, exactly. wishful drinking. There's a song called Wishful Drinking. I don't know if which one I'm doing here, but um, I, I just I'm I'm interested in what your opinion is on the severity of the recession that you believe is pending, and you think that they're going to possibly overshoot on keeping rates higher for longer. So that that tells me that it doesn't bode super well for an economic recovery. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I I think really the recession that we'll see, I, I don't think it's going to look like 2000. 7, 2008 or 2008, 2009, however you want to look at that. Um, I, I don't think it's going to be near as severe. Um, number one, I don't think our financial system, even though we've seen some issues with regional banks, that's been more of a, a mismatch between assets and liabilities more than anything else. It has nothing. It's not really a solvency issue, especially across the banking system. Back in 2008, 2009, that was more of a solvency issue. Uh, for the banking system or or really became one. And at, at the same time, when you look at the consumer in general over that period of time, they were over levered. Uh, I mean, statistics across the board did not look good. Plus, we had a housing uh, crisis that we went through there um, over that period of time as well. So there's a lot of things that came together and it was a, a pretty severe recession. Uh, I think this is more like 1990, 1991. It would be kind of a middle of the road recession. I mean, obviously any recession where you're laid off, uh, if you're the one being laid off is a severe recession. 
not trying to make light of it, but I think in general, um, a lot of people probably won't feel it too dramatically, um, but we will see slowdowns across the board. Uh, unemployment right now is, is sitting at almost rock bottom lows. So I, I think probably in this recession, unemployment is going to move up to uh, from around we're at three and a half percent all the way to maybe around six percent. Um, where a lot of recessions, if you had an, the worst unemployment was around 6%, at some point that was close to full employment. So it would have been nothing really to be that concerned about. Um, that's equivalent to about 2 million jobs lost. So again, not good, uh, but I think this is going to be more mild than what most believe or, or expect. And when you look at the consumer in general right now, uh, especially looking at household debt, uh, yes, household debt's at record highs, but you look at household assets as well, um, they're basically sitting at close to record highs. But over the last 10 years, assets have grown so much faster than household debt. So household debt relative to assets are at some of the lowest levels we've seen really since the, the, the late 1970s. And at the same time, what really matters for that consumer is, or for that household, can they afford to pay all those monthly interest payments on all that debt outstanding? And to me, when you take a look at that measure, it's, it's also sitting, we, we look at what's called the household financial obligations ratio. And this looks at all of your monthly debt obligations as a share of your after-tax income on a monthly basis. And that's sitting at some of the lowest levels we've seen as well, going back to at least 1980, which is when this measure really came out. And so I think things today look very different than 2007, 2008. I know we always tend to look at the, the last crisis or, or the last uh, recession that we've gone through to uh, kind of make see feel like that's what's going to take place. But I think this one will be very different uh, than what we experienced over that period of time. Um, a lot of people too, and I, I can talk a little, uh, it's a little tangent, but uh, just thinking about housing when I was talking about 2000, um, back in 2006, for example, when housing hit its peak, that caused part of the crisis, obviously, that we went through in 2007, 2008. But uh, prices are very elevated today as well. And so people worry, are we going to go through another housing collapse like we did back then? I think a couple things today are very different from back then. Number one, in 2006, about 40% of mortgages outstanding uh, back then were adjustable rate mortgages. So as uh, interest rates started to rise, people got in a lot of trouble. They had these zero locked in zero rate mortgages for a couple of years, and then they started to adjust higher. And that got a lot of people into trouble. They foreclosed and we had a massive inventory build and demand was, was dried up. Well, when you look at where we are today, only 3.8%, 3.8% of mortgages outstanding are adjustable rate mortgages today. So 96.2 are fixed rate mortgages. But what, what I find even more interesting is when you take a look at what interest rates these mortgages are fixed at, and about 65% of mortgages outstanding are fixed at 4% or less today. About 85% of mortgages are fixed at 5% or less. And so if, if you're in that category, I'd say especially that 65% category of 4% or less, and you uh, just want to move for the fun of it, uh, you're probably not going to move and uh, you're not going to take on a 7% interest rate when you have locked in four or less percent. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. And so we have not seen an inventory build whatsoever. In fact, inventories are almost non-existent for uh, housing still, even though demand has come down substantially. And so 
we think we will see price declines in overall <clears throat> housing, but somewhere between probably five to 10% from the peak, nothing like we saw back in 2007, 2008. Did you say 40% of mortgages in 2006 were adjustable? Yep, 40%. That, that's crazy that's to me. You know, yeah. I, that just shows how, <laughs> how like uneducated a lot of consumers are and potentially misled. And I think yeah. there's a lot of greed in the banking industry. And I think the government was totally fine with it because, of course, like we talked about, when the economy is rolling, they don't want to do anything to stop it, slow it down. Um, they, they actually encourage a lot of that. Yeah, yeah so, and if you that, keep interest rates low for such a long period of time, over that like over that period of time, you think that's how it's going to be for forever. And then at the same time, prices just continue to move higher and higher and higher. And so I think monetary policy can get people into a lot of trouble because what they see might not be the reality of where things really should be. And so right. they're impacted by that and they make foolish decisions. And uh, that's what we saw over that period of time. And obviously things, it always takes a recession to correct things and get, get things back to where they need to be. Well, yeah. like you, you mentioned, the consumer was so over leveraged back then too. Because yep. I mean, I, I remember hearing the term, I think it was like no income loans, like you or stated income loans where you didn't really have to prove. And the bank was just, yeah, you, you want to buy a home or you'd like a spec home. Yeah, we could do that for you. And then, you know, just like you said, those rates adjusted or they lose a job and bam, you wind up in foreclosure. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. yeah. And the well, fact that you're not putting any money down, it, yeah. it's so much easier. You just say, well, okay, fine. I'll just, I'll just let this property go. It's nothing, you know, it's not yeah. hurting me at all. Excuse me, we're almost in the home stretch for the episode. But before we cross the finish line, I just want you to know that you can contact Billy and his team at www.petersonws.com or by visiting the show notes. Now, back to harnessing your wealth. And yeah. of course, then ride the government officials in to the rescue, right? Uh, holding, yeah, exactly. their, <laughs> holding their white as a white knight with their swords telling everybody we're here to save you. And Yeah, it's and not their fault. Too late. Yeah, not their fault. <laughs> and, and I wanted to maybe jump into that a little bit deeper but going back to your housing issue yeah we don't you're not looking for a severe housing recession how about new construction though because you just mentioned people that have locked into these these low rates will be disinclined to sell their home and and be forced to refinance or pick up a new mortgage at a higher rate yeah. how about new construction so the folks that the younger generation you know maybe want to go out and buy a home or build a home what's what's that going to do to the overall economy yeah, I think really the biggest issue that we still face in housing is a lack of inventory. And so we still need to be building more homes um, every single year just to keep up with population growth and, and really scrappage rates. So we should be averaging about one and a half million home, new homes a year just to keep up with those two issues. When I say scrappage rates, I mean homes that are uh, very, very old that need to be torn down or condemned or that are hit with natural disasters or whatnot. So about one and a half million homes. We've been really after uh, 2008 and 2009, we were underbuilding for majority of the last 10 years or so. And finally, we've just gotten back to a level that's that's close to this one and a, a half million homes per year that needs to be uh, built. And so uh, I think we'll start to see inventories pick up somewhat there. Um, obviously, we've seen uh, this big slowdown in demand, uh, but we're still seeing a lot of projects that are continuing to move forward. And I, I think it's important that these projects continue to move forward because 
the dip in housing I don't think is going to last for forever. A lot of what's holding back buyers right now, I think, are higher interest rates. And I think over the next couple of years, we will see rates substantially lower than where they are today. But partly, I think it's kind of just like sticker shock. You you get used to the new environment at some point, and then you just decide to move forward with it. And I think that's where we are today. I live in, in Southern California. I moved here uh, about five years ago. And uh, one thing that was hard to get used to was the sticker shock of where gas prices are. And especially over the last couple of years, I mean, I, I, uh, with COVID and, and uh, the shutdowns and everything that we dealt with, and then with the inflation that we'd seen and where uh, gas prices went in California, I mean, they topped, they got up to about $7 a gallon. And I remember, you know, they were hovering before then in the, in the fours, the low fours. And I remember when it crossed over five, uh, I thought to myself, this is just insanity. And then it kept going. And uh, now it's back to about five. And that feels pretty good relative to the, you know, <laughs> You're the still seven. higher than where you were before. Yeah, but exactly. You feel great well, about it. Feels, it feels a lot better yeah. than where we were at the seven. And yeah. so I think that's kind of similar to, to interest rates in general as well, especially for housing. I think people, you get that sticker shock at first and, and you think, well, there's no way I'm going to do this. But then as it stays there for longer and then you start to see some little improvement, you think, well, man, maybe I should jump in now and then I can refinance in the future or, or maybe rates continue to go up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't believe that. But I think we're starting to see some buyers come off the sidelines now, finally. Uh, but uh, I think the new home construction, I don't think we're overbuilding whatsoever like we were back in 2005 in 2006, especially, um, we've been underbuilding, if anything. And so I think it's a real positive that that continues. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how that develops with this, uh, like you said, getting used to the new environment, the rate environment, but can also can they afford the monthly payments? Because it's yeah. a lot more payment for the, the same house. And Huge, sometimes yeah. people have to significantly downsize Huge. what they're looking to purchase. So we have just time for a couple more questions, uh, maybe one from me and one from Sean here, and then, and then we're going to let you go. But, um, you know, speaking with with debt, we've talked a lot about debt and the impact. I, I'm looking at the overall economy, the country in general, some of the things I, uh, I'm i just completely dumbfounded by with regards to, for example, our total amount of government debt. And for some reason, we can't ever seem to balance our budget. We can't ever seem to come to terms with wanting to reduce the amount of outstanding debt that we have. It's concerning to me because of the level of inflation and the increase in rates that the our own government has to make payment on, you know, one of the largest borrowers out there. So help me understand how it is that we got into an environment where we normalize the process of continuously raising the debt limit. We have the media get on and and speak of, you know, Congress now having to get together and talk about raising the the debt limit. It's like, it's almost a, a given. Yeah, we're going to raise it. And I think to myself, what if I were sitting here at the kitchen table with my wife and we're in, in credit card debt up to our eyeballs, can't even make the payments. And we're talking about how we're going to go find another loan and borrow some more against that card. Yet, yet everyone's criticized if someone puts a foot down and says, no, I don't want to raise this debt limit. And then they look at them as, you know, anti, anti-government, anti-growth, anti-whatever. I, I'm just confused. So long story short, what do you think of all that? And are we ever going to, 
Is this ever going to grow into a major problem for our, us as a country? Sure. <clears throat> yeah, I think for the, the last part of your question, could this grow into a big problem for our country? I think it can. And I think if we continue to uh, accumulate deficits, multi-trillion dollar, trillion dollar deficits, as far as the eye can see, and the debt continues to grow at the rate that it's been growing, that will become a huge issue, especially as we have an aging population and, and more and more of the government spending that's taking place is going towards uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid uh, programs. Um, I think the, the biggest thing for me is you think about, well, why do we have as much debt as we currently do? Uh, it's because government is spending far more money than they're bringing in. As you said, as a private citizen, we can't do that. Uh, at some point, we get cut off. But for the government, they they never get cut off. And partly, um, it's because we're the world's reserve currency. We have the ability to be able to do this to run huge deficits. But uh, I think it does become a problem because you think about government spending in general, the only way government spends money is by either borrowing it or taxing it really from the private sector. And so as government grows, it makes a smaller, less vibrant private sector. The bigger government gets, uh, usually the slower the economy that you see. It's been proven over and over again over history. And so uh, yes, kicking the, you know, every, we have this, this debt limit debate uh, every couple of years now, and it just, we just continue to kick it down the road, uh, causes some volatility. And the big thing is, oh, we're going to default on our debt if we don't move it. The, the reality is, is that that would be the absolute last thing that we would ever default on. Other programs would be cut first. But the bigger issue, and I think if somebody actually does want to take this seriously, is you need to figure out ways to fix entitlement spending. Uh, when you look at transfer payments to individuals, that's the issue with government spending. Majority of government spending is made up for uh, transfer payments to, to individuals, Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid. I mean, the list goes on and on. And uh, a lot of these programs, when they're put in place, were, you know, think about Social Security, you're going to live for one year, maybe, to receive Social Security at that time. But uh, as we know, over time, the, the age that people are living has gotten longer and longer, and yet they've kept in basically the same rules that were there originally. And so people are now entitled to a lot more money than what was ever dreamed of uh, possible yeah. going out. Um, so I think that's really the big issue. Uh, in the longer term, I'd say 10 years plus, if we don't do anything to fix some of these programs to make them more solvent, um, that is going to be a big issue because our deficits are going to be running um, multi, multi-trillions, and that's going to be a, a, a huge problem. Um, but in the short term, over the next three to five years, it's not something I, I'm ultra concerned about. Um, and the reason, especially for the interest payments on all the debt outstanding, uh, right now, even though we've accumulated so much more debt because interest rates have been so low when we've accumulated majority of that debt, net interest payments as a share of, let's say, the economy are running right around uh, 2% right now. Mm. If you look back to the 80s and 90s, they were running about 3%. Even though we had a lot lower debt, we had a lot higher interest rates. So even if all debt get, say, tomorrow uh, rolled over and it was taken out at 4%, let's just say, it would just get us back to about 3% of, of GDP, which is where we were in the, the 80s and 90s and things grew fine. 
Um, and so in, in the short term, I'm not worried, but I think the bigger issue is why do we keep accumulating this debt? And it's just that the government spends way too much money and it's, it's not a revenue issue whatsoever. You look back over history, revenues as a share of GDP have, have averaged since World War II about 17.5%. That's about where we are today. Spending has averaged about 19.5%, which is why we always have a deficit. And today it's about 23, 24%. And so the issue is we're spending too much, even though we're bringing in an amount of revenues, no matter what you change taxes to, whether you tax people at 50%, 70%, 80%, um, people figure out ways to either, you know, that makes people either not want to work anymore. And so they're not bringing in any more revenue or, or they figure out ways to get around it. And so no matter what tax rates have been over history, revenues on average have come in right around 17 and a half percent. And so right. if you ever want to get serious about balancing the budget, you need to get spending down to around that place. Bill right. Clinton was able to do that. And that's why we had a surplus uh, for a couple years then, but he's really been the last one that's been able to do that, that uh, took it somewhat seriously. Yeah. We have two more minutes, Sean. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I was going to ask a question, but Billy <laughs> Billy asked the multi-trillion dollar question about the, <laughs> the debt limit. But I, you know, your explanation of that makes sense. The spending as a percentage of the GDP and and that gives me some comfort, but still we're seeing so much accumulation and we're talking to, you know, younger clients all the time about social security. Is it going to be there for you or not? I mean, someone's going to have to tackle that issue because it's yeah. slated to go broke here in the next 10 years, I think. And no one, no one in Congress wants to touch it because they're going to be the bad guy um, or girl. So it, it's interesting the way you put it that way in the short term, but longer term, I think you're right. It's, it's just an accumulating issue. So now, I'm going to ask you one last one then. I guess we're almost out of time, but I want to ask sure. your opinion with regards to maybe the economic landscape. And I know I don't want to put you on the spot as far as giving us investment recommendations, but I know you guys as a firm have your opinions. Do you feel that this environment is setting up for potentially uh, good in certain areas of the market, or are you looking even potentially at more international opportunities. Can you share with us a little bit about your firm's opinion there? Sure. Yeah, I, I think it might still be a little early to get in internationally. And I think partly because we see this recession coming in the second half of the year in the United States, usually when the United States sneezes, you, the, the saying is the world gets a cold. And so mm -hmm. probably a lot of other countries are going to feel the impacts from the U.S. falling into a recession. Um, that's not to say there's not a lot of value internationally right now. So um, if you want to dip dip your toe in. I just want to make it a majority of any portfolio right now. Um, I, I think the U.S., you still get a lot of exposure as well. But I'd be really overweighting in the United States in general quality um, and uh, dividends. I think dividend payers are, are an area that you want to be in. I, I, the way I look at the world right now is I'd say in the short term here, you want to protect yourself. You want to be in quality names. You want to be able to have some form of, of income that you can make in this environment, but prepare yourself over for the next five to 10 years. Because when I look out over the next five to 10 years with the technology that we have on the forefront today, I think some of the best returns that we have seen in a long time are just right around the corner. And the reason I say that is, is because I think the productivity gains that we are going to experience from these new technologies, you think about 
artificial intelligence and, and how it's really starting to take off because chips are now powerful enough to to just process really billions, trillions of bits of data almost instantaneously. That's uh, big companies like uh, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Netflix. I mean, these companies have been using artificial intelligence for years and it's been to their advantage. They've become extremely productive and made massive profits. Well, now that's starting to filter down that technology to small and medium-sized business. And when I look out over the next five to 10 years and to see how businesses are going to use this to their benefit, the productivity gains are going to be immense. And so short-term protect yourself, but long-term we are very optimistic on where position for that. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good outlook. Thanks for sharing that with us and wrapping up. We appreciate your time today, Strider. Great name, by the way, first time I've ever heard anyone with that name. So thank thank you, Billy. Really pleasure to be with you and Sean. You guys are wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, Thanks for being on. Thanks for being on. And so thanks everyone for joining us today. Stay tuned for next time. We're going to have a potential Hall of Fame trainer, Thoroughbred trainer from California. Join us for that one. Thanks again, Strider. Thank you. Appreciate your time today. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to Harnessing Your Wealth with Billy Peterson. Before we declare the race official, please click the follow button so you can be notified when new episodes become available. For more information about today's show, please check out the show notes. Visit our website at www.petersonws.com or give us a call at 801-475-4002. Once again, thank you for listening. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Peterson Wealth Services. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.